0: I love these moments all day long been in this room preaching and it really does feel like all of that has been a warm up for this moment right now and there's no gathering that's more important than another but there's an elevated level of expectation especially given what we're about to talk about that you can feel and what Gage is saying you can feel it from our team leading you in worship and I right now have made it a point before this one to just let go and go, God, I've been so careful to try to say the right thing today. And at this gathering, I just want to, with zero fear of man whatsoever, be unchained to say what you called me to say. So I'm more than prepared to preach to you, but all day just felt like I've been tiptoeing around some things that I've been bold to speak into, but it's like God was going for this moment right here and right now. There needs to be overwhelming clarity and vision for what God has called us to as the remnant. So if you're just joining us for the first time, you need to know what that word remnant means because you're seeing it on t-shirts, you're seeing it on hats, you're seeing it all over the place because we want that to become a battle cry for our church. But we don't want that to be the name of a sermon series that we did on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is so much more than a sermon series. This is literally our leadership coming in front of our church and going, hey, this is who we feel like God has called us to be moving forward for years to come. So if you're just checking out ACC and you're going, I don't know if this is going to be my home church, this is a great season to be doing that because we're literally talking about where God's calling us. The word remnant means group that remains. And in the word of God, the remnant of the people of God is always this like small group that's staying faithful to God through prayer. And even when the people of God are taken away into exile, there's this group that remains and and they're faithful to God. And what we've been saying is that we as a church don't wanna grow and grow and grow to the point that we start to drown out the remnant of being a praying people and start to cater to masses of new people. So last Sunday, I'm bringing that message. We're seven years in as a church. Last Sunday, there were over 4,000 people who came to this building, which is daunting because for us, We're not the church that goes home and high fives and goes, so many people came to our thing, that's awesome. We're nervously reacting to that going, gosh, I hope they know what they're being called to do as followers of Jesus. I hope they know this is a narrow path, not a wide one. I hope they know that the path that we're talking about, few find, and many end up on paths to destruction. And so what we're clarifying in this season is that When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he invited the masses to be a part of the remnant. So here's where we're going as a church. Instead of catering to the masses and becoming the type of church that sort of reacts to the size that we are now and creating all these different programs and organizing with all these different systems, which are good, by the way, you need to do that stuff. But the last thing we want to do is drown out the power of the Holy Spirit and drown out the remnant of the praying people. We want it to be normal at our church for you to have a vibrant prayer life. We want it to be normal for you to read the Bible for yourself. And we want spiritual growth as a disciple of Jesus to be the main marker of what it means to be someone who is saved by grace through faith in Jesus. So here's what we're praying, and we'll put this on the screen. We're praying, God, transform us from being consumers of Jesus's merit to being disciples of Jesus's way. This is what we want to see happen as we walk through the most famous sermon ever preached, which, by the way, was not Jesus from a mountain shouting to thousands of people. It was Jesus seated on a mountain teaching his disciples and inviting thousands of others to listen in. And so what that means is we've gotten so good as the church in 2021 at consuming the merit of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, but we don't accept that hand in hand with what's called the cost of discipleship. Have you ever noticed that there are people who will give their lives to Jesus for eternal fire insurance but never fully accept that the cost is their entire life here and now? And the two aren't separate. It's not like bonus Christianity to actually follow the Sermon on the Mount. It's, no, Jesus accomplished on your behalf what you could never accomplish on your own. And when you come to saving faith in him and you get a right relationship with your heavenly father, you become a disciple of his ways. Now his way of life becomes your way of life and he's slowly but surely transforming you from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's called sanctification and he's undefeated at it. And that's what you're invited into in your relationship with God. And so we don't want you to settle for a surface level version of Christianity. We don't want you to settle for just emotional moments of worship where you apologize for your sins lately. We want you to get the real thing. We want you to have a transformed life. We want God to touch the areas of your life that you've called off limits for too long. We want God to touch your career. We want him to define your future family. We want him to set your family free from generations of sin that have been passed down to you. And we're believing by the power of the Holy Spirit that that is possible when the people of God pray. So here we are at the very end of 21 days of prayer. The last time we were in a moment like this was in January. Brad Jones from Passion City Church was here. And we had a man at our early service who had a conversation with Brad during the sermon. You guys remember this? A dad in our church talking back and forth with the guy preaching. Something about Brad going to Texas A&M and this guy went to Texas A&M and that dad His name is Mike Power, and he had passed away by noon that afternoon. No idea happened out of nowhere. He actually served on our parking team, and then he's gone by lunch in the presence of God. And so I got to go be with the family that day, and then that last gathering, if you remember, this is the very end of 21 days of prayer, that Sunday night, we saw God do something in this room that seemed like it was something out of the Bible. I saw people falling out emotional before the Lord in droves, and, but not like moved by a high part of a song, or if you believe that Jesus is touching your life right now, just fall on your face. Like I mean out of nowhere, people just, boom, submitted to God. Tears, shouts, joy, pain. Jesus moved and woke us up to the eternal story that we were invited into. And now here we are at the end of another 21 days of prayer, and we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and we land on this passage. And if there's one passage in the Bible that I don't want to preach tonight, it's this one. Jesus is going to give us his explicit direction for how we are called to handle our sex lives. And when you read it, it's going to sound restrictive It's going to sound impossible. It's going to sound disconnected from what you really want. And it's going to sound like something you actually want to walk away from. But I believe it's not an accident that we're in the moment that we're in right now preaching this sermon because I believe there is not one area quite like this one that is stealing the potential of what God could do in and through the next generation like sexual sin. I believe within the sound of my voice right now, there's a thousand people in this room Who this area of your life could make or break your story. And for a lot of you, it's already breaking you right now. It doesn't matter how many times you sing Run to the Father, you know you're gonna run back to porn. It doesn't matter how many times that emotional feeling of connectedness to God overwhelms you at a church service, you know you and your boyfriend are going too far. You've compromised. And when you read what Jesus teaches about this, it is not encouraging. It's, if anything, discouraging and overwhelming. And so what I want to do is as I deliver this word, I wanted to invite us into a moment where it's not accidental that we're in this together. And it's not accidental that we're in this passage. But if we let God illuminate what's true from the scriptures, I actually believe your story, your marriage, and your future could be rewritten right here and right now. And that is not hype. That is not me trying to get you excited about what I'm about to say. This is something I have said one time today. You can ask the people who have been here four times. God is here, and he is speaking. And he's not speaking because I'm talking loudly. He is speaking because our hearts are open to what he says in his word. Let me give you the title of this sermon just so you know where we're going. The title of this sermon is called Pursuing Sexual Wholeness. Pursuing Sexual wholeness. So could you look at someone next to you in the eyes and say, here we go. Here we go. We are like, what am I going to have to say? Buckle up, y'all. It's happening. So That is a strange to obscure, is probably a better word, way of titling a sermon on sexual sin and sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. I grew up in the True Love Waits generation, where every talk about sex was about purity. And the idea was that you make a purity commitment. In retrospect, it wasn't a purity commitment, it was a virginity commitment that very few people truly had the intention of fulfilling, but it was a cool yellow card that you got to put in your wallet. And so I was like, sure, yeah, I'll sign that. I'm not going to have sex until I'm married. And then when I become old enough to actually find out what I signed, I'm hiding that or throwing that away somewhere. That's how it was for most people in the true love wage generation. And so the words that we use to motivate the next generation were always purity. It was this idea that God calls you to be holy. You should not look like the culture around you. You should chase purity. The people of God are pure. And that's true. But the motivation was basically, God said it, you should do it. And that did not work for probably 95% of the people receiving the message, including me. Then the other sermons I heard that were a little bit better weren't necessarily about purity. They were more about intimacy. And so I would hear the statement... Purity now paves the way to intimacy later. And the whole motivation was, hey, purity is not enough of a motivator. Intimacy in marriage is the true motivator. So you should chase after purity because you'll get intimacy in your marriage. And then we had a lot of Christians grow up believing that if they just didn't have sex before they were married, they were guaranteed a powerful sex life in their marriage if them and their partner did the same thing, which is a lie, total lie. You take two people who have believed that sexual desire is rooted in shame, and they've stayed away from it their entire lives just because they're afraid of it, and you get them married and send them on their honeymoon and tell them to have sex all the time and watch them try to turn the lights on on an area of life that they've been shutting down their entire life. They're so rooted in shame, they have no idea how to connect. That did not deliver, and it definitely did not deliver for me. Impurity is a great word. Intimacy is a great word. Here's, the, here's a word that I love more, wholeness because what it means to be whole is to have an undivided heart to be healed to be one to have one purpose one vision for your life for your marriage for your body is so attractive to me i want to be one in mind body and spirit and word and in deed i want to be whole And that's an invitation for any and every season. So we do have a lot of college students here tonight, but we have multiple different seasons of life. And I realize the level of baggage that people are carrying in this area of life and the complications of the way you grew up, whether it was in a a sexually abusive environment or something where you were taught the wrong things or something where purity culture kind of shamed you into thinking that your desires were actually a bad thing and that discussion's finally happening now. Or maybe you were in a more liberal household that was like, no, 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 you just need to liberate your desires, whatever you want all the time. I've had people who we've had to get into counseling because that type of environment was equally as abusive in their development and who they became sexually over time. I know we got a lot of baggage in this room. we got a lot of seasons of life. But the invitation for all of us is wholeness. And it's an invitation to experience a gift of God the way he created it. So I know right now if I asked you to describe God's intention and design for sex, most of you would struggle And the vast majority of us would fall short. And if I looked into who's actually experiencing and enjoying God's design for this, the numbers would be even lower. Because at a fundamental level, a lot of us have never fully agreed to the fact that God's the designer of sexuality in the first place. That throws us off. That makes us uncomfortable. Did you know God is not opposed to pleasure? He created it. Do you know the pleasures of God are actually the things that are supposed to usher you in to glorify God? They're not held contrary to what a life glorifying God looks like. This is the teaching of a brilliant man named John Piper. It's called Christian Hedonism. And the idea at the center is uh, is this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I love that. It means the glorification of Jesus in and through your life happens when you experience the pleasures of God. He actually wrote a book called The Pleasures of God, and it will blow your mind if you check it out. And the idea is the pleasure I experience in a godly way maximizes the glory of God through my life. It's when I settle for pleasures that are less than the way God created them that I circumvent His purpose in and through my life. So God created pleasure, and God created sex. Always got to remind our church when God created Adam and Eve, He didn't go for a walk in the garden one day and go, Oh my goodness what are you guys doing? Adam, get off of her. Like what, what, is, what is, and we picture him like that. We picture us, us acting on our desires as deviating from the design of God, not living in the center of it. You got a God who, this is his idea, This was his intention, and what he wants is for human beings made in his image to express themselves sexually in a way that maximizes their personal fulfillment and his glory in and through our lives. That's what God wants. Now, here's the thing about the devil and what sin does. The devil is not creative. He never initiates anything on his own. All he does is distort things God created perfectly, So sex is not the only area he does this. You look at the good gifts God gives us, like food or medicines or alcohol. You could go down the list. What the enemy does is he twists a good gift and he goes, hey, let's take it out of the context God created it for. Let's overindulge on it, make you addicted to it and ruin your life from the inside out. And his ultimate goal for all of you in whatever he twists and distorts is suicide. And be very careful when you think to yourself, I'm not mentally unstable. I would never take my own life. I'm telling you, there is a plan in an evil realm that exists, I believe, for every single one of us who are in Christ to self-destruct and take our own lives. I truly believe that. And his avenue and pathway for you doing that is that you would take one of the distortions and like poison over time, it would ruin your life from the inside out. And there's no area quite like sexual sin where he's more blatant about it. So he takes something God makes perfectly, twists it, redistributes it in a cheaper distorted version, and it bites like poison the same way the fruit did. And that is why there's a massive level of destruction in this room when we have this conversation. But I need you to bring that destruction. I need you to bring that baggage. I need you to bring what you brought or what you did last night or what happened last week in the most secret space of who you are. Because if we are going to experience everything the Holy Spirit wants to say in these moments, we have got to be open before the Lord going, okay, my rabbi is teaching me. This is his way. This is how I'm called to walk in this. I'm bringing everything about my story and laying it out there for him to transform and I believe he will do it. Are you ready to look to the Word of God? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Now, hold them up high. There's no good way to do a Bible drill given the context of our conversation tonight. But I promise you, over the course of the next few weeks, I will make this up to you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Let's do it, y'all. And I know it's serious. I know it's heavy. But... This is so needed that this conversation would happen in church, and for so long, the church has been afraid to not just take this on and address sin as sin, but to also do the opposite and address pleasure as pleasure. So over the course of this message, some of the content, it's not going to get weird, but it's going to get interesting. Some of the faces I've seen today have been, oh, wow, we're saying that in church? Okay, yep, he just said it. So that's what's happening. You got to go with me on this. But we got to get it from the context in which it was written from the teacher, Jesus is preaching a sermon, the most famous sermon ever preached, and he's unleashing some truths about the law of Moses. And what he is saying is that the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which is external adherence to rules and restrictions, he's teaching that that does not equal entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And that the laws of Moses were external laws that didn't get fully to the heart issue of what is wrong with humanity. So he takes the sixth commandment and he says, you've heard it said, do not murder But you think God just wants you to check the box that you didn't kill anybody? No. In the kingdom of God, God wants to transform you from the inside out and eradicate anger from having a place in your heart and life. Now he's going to move on from the sixth commandment about murder to the seventh commandment, which is about adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. If you're there, say, I'm there. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And I I get nervous to even read the words because for so many of you, all that's doing is confirming what you assumed, that God wants to shut down not just the fun that you want to have in this area outside of marriage, but even a realistic sense of what it means to be a human being in our day. And I just want to caution you. If you look at this in the context that was written as Jesus taught it, there's actually freedom to be found in the limitation. So go with me on this. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is he saying in saying that? He's saying it's not enough to check the box. I didn't have sex with anyone who's not my spouse. He says what God wants to do on the inside of you is do an internal transformation that deals with what's wrong with your heart. What's wrong? What's wrong with your heart is that the direction of your eyes will become the intention of your heart if you're not careful. So he goes after men, and he says, Hey, that look that you give where someone's body causes you to want to lust intently after her. So he's not talking about being tempted, okay? He's not talking about yoga pants, right, What walked by in front of you and you're like, thank goodness that was invented because that makes my battle so much easier. And no, 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 he's not talking about those moments where you're just like, I am so tempted to look again right now. It's not the first look. It's the second, the third, and the fourth. And more than anything, it's the plan to stow away in the Rolodex of your mind what you saw for your own enjoyment and pleasure later. That's adultery of the heart. To hold on to the objectification of a body for the purpose of enjoying it for yourself and leaving every other part of that person out of the equation. It's just for you. Jesus aims this at men and is using an example from real life. But I need to say, I'm so tired of the purity or sexual intimacy conversation being had in church. And it's like we talk to the guys over here and we go, Men, now you know this is our issue and the ladies don't struggle with this. Only we struggle. So let's talk about it. Let's confess. Let's get it right. And that's such a problem. Because there's so many ladies in this room who you need to hear. It is not weird that you struggle sexually. You are not strange and needing to hide because you watch porn regularly. You need to know in this moment that you have a safe place to go, this is what I'm struggling with right now. ACC is the safest place in the world for people who are open about their own sexual brokenness. Who are like, I have issues and I'm tempted to hide them away, but there's something wrong from within me. If that's God's standard, Your inner world, my inner world, has a major problem. So notice this. Jesus is not painting an impossible standard going, I know you struggle with this, and I just want to annoy you and show you you have no place in the kingdom of God. He's going, I know you struggle with this, and the change I want to make on the inside of you is going to be mandated or dealing with it is going to mandate a radical response. So he goes, if this is what is wrong within you, if that's the standard, No pun intended, we are screwed, y'all. If the standard is I, that has not happened yet. If the standard is I have to watch every level of my thought life and inner world and make sure that there is no objectification of another, that there is no crossing the bounds of one man, one woman for one lifetime, that is the context for which sexual intimacy is meant to be celebrated. I have an issue that I have to deal with. And he wants to get you there. And then, and then what, what's his prescription? Like a good doctor, he gives you a diagnosis and then he gives you a prescription. Oh, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. So for the first two weeks of this series, we've been talking about how the Sermon on the Mount is not theoretical. Jesus actually intends us to obey this stuff. Begs the question are we going to do this? Like, are we, we going to have, and we have surgeons in this church. Like, they're going to be up front. <laughs> we're going to play some songs after this, and you can just bring your members down. Like, that's what we're going to do. And, and that's a legit question through church history. I don't want to tell you that that's not exactly what Jesus means without telling you that there were people who thought that's what Jesus meant by this. There was a guy in the early church, his name was Origen, and he was like, no, we got to take what Jesus said literally. So he cut off his hand. Gouged out his eyes, still struggle with lust, and he was like, man, I really thought that's what Jesus had in mind, but I am still lusting. This is a problem. So he goes, oh, maybe I'm supposed to be a little, this is a true story, maybe I'm supposed to be a little more radical. So he goes all the way. I mean, yeah, that, yeah. Ouch. And then he comes back, this is not funny for him, but funny for us. He comes back and he goes, yeah, I, I did that and I'm still struggling with lust. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. And I was like, that's a very unfortunate misinterpretation of the scriptures for you, sir. But unfortunately, we can't do anything for you but pray now because you took that radical step. I love that John Piper said it this way. He said, if I gouge out my right eye because I lust with it, I could just as easily lust with my left. Jesus is going after the heart with this. And he is not advocating for mutilation of bodily members, but he is advocating for the mortification of your flesh from the inside out. And he is intentionally using an example that makes you go, whoa, that's jarring. That's difficult for me to hear. He wants you to go, did he just say that? And Jesus would go, yeah, I just said that. I just said that because you're dealing with an area that does not fight fair. So you can't fight this the way you fight every other area of your life. You have to fight this with a level of radical intentionality that looks nothing like any other area of your life. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you a playbook for how you are called to fight sexual sin in your own life. And it's going to look so different, so radical, so strange and borderline legalistic to a lot of you. But what Jesus is trying to get you to see is that the reason why I'm dealing with it like this is because it's that damaging now jesus is aware of how damaging it is but when you read this through the lens of two thousand years of christian history you can tell he thinks it's damaging but what you can't tell because we didn't live in this time is that jesus has a deep appreciation for the enjoyment of sexuality in the context of marriage we don't think of jesus that way at all we see everything that we've encountered from our church history and we go yeah of course, this is what Jesus is teaching. Nothing good about it, nothing celebratory about it, nothing to draw me to it, but what you don't realize is 2,000 years ago, in Jewish culture, there was this book of the Bible that's right in the middle of the Old Testament, and it's called Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, and it's literally an erotic love poem that involves letters back and forth between a guy and a girl, and their friends joining in and cheering them on as they do this. They are headed for marriage together, and they are talking about their relationship, and it is a back and forth account of them detailing what they want to do to each other physically. Some of y'all have never read the Bible. You're like, I know what I'm reading tonight. Bible reading plan, song of songs. That's what we're studying. I mean, it's explicit. It's so explicit that At the time Jesus was alive, they would not show this to young Jewish boys until they were 12 years old. That's right in the middle of your Bible. But the reason why Jesus' understanding of a letter like that is different than ours is because in Song of Solomon, there's a progression of the word love. And we use the word love for every usage of the word, whether it's I love my wife or I love football or food. It's like, oh my... I got the same word, and you know in Greek, there's like six different words for love, but in Hebrew, that the Old Testament was written in, there's three main words. And in Song of Solomon, they all build hand in hand. The first one is called raya, and that means like brotherly affection, like friendship. Think of your best friend on planet Earth, the person who you would rather go on a trip with than anybody, that's raya. That's like, I love being around him, I love being around her. We just are, there's some kind of chemistry that we have together that is just right when we're together, raya ahava is like covenantal commitment deep ferocious faithfulness when the bible talks about how yahweh is a god of love and faithfulness that's ahava it's like i would rather be with you and i will commit to be with you on the good days and on the bad days for richer or for poorer sickness and in health and we throw that into our marriage vows that's the type of love that's being referred to here it means covenantal commitment i am in this good or bad and then the third love is called, it doesn't sound like the other two, it's called doad. And that one is all about erotic passion. It means, this is where Song of Solomon arrives, it talks about the friendship and it talks about the deep commitment, but then it gets to, I want all of you. And part of me celebrating my want of all of you is my enjoyment of your body physically. And I want that so bad, I almost feel like I have to have it right now. And in that letter, it says, do not awaken love until it so desires. It says, don't awaken that one until it desires. And so here's, here's the Hebrew thought about what sex is. Sex is the celebration of all three of those worlds meeting in one fire called marriage. Think multiple logs on one fire. You got the friendship, you got the deep commitment, And you got the physical expression, boom, that's marriage. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, don't pull out the physical objectification of somebody else's body who you have no commitment to, who you have no intention of even spending any level of life with, you have no friendship to, don't use that for yourself because it will kill you. He said, it'd be better for you to lose part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. What does hell mean? That's the word Gehenna. We talked about that last week. It's a place in Israel that was considered to be the darkest place on planet earth. He's going, if you take the physical expression of this and just use it for your own pleasure and take it outside of the boundary that I've placed it in, you will destroy yourself. You might hear that and go, no, I won't. But if you think of the context of fire, fire is awesome when it's kept in the context for which it's supposed to burn, a fireplace. But you take a fire and you let it burn in the living room, it'll take everything from you. It's exactly how sexuality is. You have everything going against you. I'm about to depress everybody in this room, look up here. You have three things working against you tonight. You have church culture that has told you God is not for pleasure, and you have a dating culture that goes in the opposite direction of the way life was 2000 years ago, and You're on the back end of a sexual revolution that did not plan to have technological innovation take said sexual revolution to new levels of accessibility every single day of your life. So I told you about how depressing number one is that you believe God's not for pleasure. Let me tell you about two and three. The second one would be the progression of dating. 2,000 years ago, the level of um, or the order of those loves is in the opposite direction of the way we experience them. So 13, 14, 15 years old, you would get an arranged marriage set up. They would make a commitment before they even knew each other as friends and definitely before they ever slept together. However you feel about that, of course I don't advocate for that. And of course that's super weird to us. But for them, this is the progression. You make the commitment of marriage right when your body is physically ready for you to do that, and a lot of that's based on your family and the right fit from whatever tradition or walk of life you come from, but you make that commitment, and then you grow the friendship and the sexual passion over time in the context of marriage. Fast forward 2,000 years. We go in the opposite direction. 99.9% of the relationships in this room, my marriage included, the first filter of whether or not you want to date that person is sexual attraction. That's number one. So if I am not physically drawn to your body, I'm not interested in you. I'm not saying that there aren't times where other things happen, but for the most part, that's what we're looking for first and foremost. Does your body draw me to you? And then after that, what do we do? We look for friendship and we go, okay, it's not enough just that we're physically attracted. Is there chemistry? Do we enjoy spending time together? And then that's what dating is. It's the overtime progression of evaluation where you go, are we the right fit physically, spiritually, emotionally? And then at the very end, you see how it's in opposite order? We make the commitment. But culture has pushed that commitment back so much further biologically than when they were getting married 2000 years ago. So you see that it's like 15, 16, 17 years old. And now we made a joke earlier about, oh, people get married so early in Auburn. But if you compare it to back then, it was, it's actually a lot later. And what we've done is culturally we've said, hey, he's got to have his career figured out. We've got to be graduated from college. We've got to be out of debt. And the ring's got to be big enough to impress your friends. Which, can we just stop with that? Like, however impressive the ring is, we, we know your parents bought it. Like, none of us, none of us are going, wow, you did that for her. It's like, no, you go to Auburn out of state. Clearly, your dad has money. Like, what, what are we talking about? What are we doing, guys? Um, but, come on, I will. I will. And then it's, uh, it's just so much more about the wrong things. And I'm not saying you don't need to be prayed up. You do. But in the right context, marriage needs to be something that we go, okay, like even if we're not ready on every level in the world's eyes, if you've got that spiritual maturity figured out, you know who you are in Christ. When the time is right, the time is right. And so here, I'm just trying to paint a picture of how depressing it is to be you tonight. You have, <laughs> I think, I'm so glad I came. Um, <laughs> church culture, painting a picture of a Jesus who's not for your pleasure dating culture, pushing marriage further and further back in the opposite direction. So if you're already super sexually attracted to the person who you have a friendship with, of course you wanna have sex with them. Of course, you walk around all the time going, when are we actually gonna make this commitment? Because my body's ready, your body's ready. And this is why so many people get off of God's timetable. Just so we're clear, I'm not advocating for experiencing sexual intimacy with someone who you're not married to. I'm just painting a picture of how that makes this road so much more difficult. And then, for a lot of you who actually take Jesus seriously, like me and my wife did, we put our physical relationship on hold until we got married, and then getting married was a whole nother battle of re-figuring out, okay, so we just like stopped that, and we probably should have been doing that all along because we knew, oh, I'm in, this is the one for me, but we couldn't do it because he's got to graduate and figure out his life, and we got to do all the things that I talked about before. So you got that working against you. And then the third thing you have working against you, the sexual revolution and technological innovation. In the 60s and 70s, our culture did a shift and it said, hey, stop pressing down sexual desire. Liberate it. Be you. Be who you are. Sleep with who you want to sleep with. Marry who you want to marry. Divorce who you want to divorce. Have kids with who you want to have kids with. Watch what you want to watch and watch. As our sexual ethic plummeted, technological innovation skyrocketed. So we got movies. We got music. We got websites. We got computers in the palm of our hands that statistics say the guys in this room, who is, is probably somewhere around 96, 97% have some type of an issue with pornography. The guys in this room who watch porn, in five minutes, you will see more sexually explicit images than your grandfather or great grand and great grandfather saw in their lifetimes combined. In five minutes, you'll see that. And your brain is not ready for that. And we got females in the room who are struggling with the same thing, many of them falling into the same addictions that guys are into, but you add on to that that females are a lot more motivated by the feeling of being wanted, of being desired, of being beautiful. So what they have is they have a knowledge of the fact that the guys are watching that. They're comparing themselves to porn stars and models who are doctored to the nth degree And they're getting devices at 12, 13 years old, and they can compare themselves to not only the impossible standard, but to people who are all around them in everyday life. And you look at what that has done, and I I don't have to keep talking right now, because I'm looking at a group going, yeah, we know. We're in it. I could give you full sermon worth of statistics right now on divorce, on sexual abuse, on addiction to pornography, things that are unwanted, anxiety and depression related to sexual issues, I could spend the whole sermon unleashing these and all it would do is throw you further and further into a state of depression tonight because you would go, this is ridiculous. This is where we are right now? And then enter Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. If you commit adultery in your heart, You are tainted and you are hell-bound based on the doctrine of the kingdom of God. But thank God that's not the message of the sermon. And thank God that's not the first thing he said in this sermon. You guys remember how the Sermon on the Mount started? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who did Jesus come to give the kingdom to? people who are aware of their own spiritual bankruptcy. And I would add on to that, people who are aware of their own sexual bankruptcy. So if you're here tonight, and this entire sermon is one big depressing reminder of how short you fall of God's standard, if it's one big reminder of how much baggage you're carrying, welcome to the club. But Jesus says, hey, the kingdom is actually for you. And if you're poor in spirit, what's the next? beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You mourn your sin. You don't throw it away like it's nothing. You go through the progression. What ends up happening in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Only Jesus can take you from spiritual poverty to sexual purity. Only Jesus can meet you in the state that you're in right now with all of this stuff weighing against you and go, I got something new. I got something different. I got something better. And if you let me, I will totally and completely transform your life. And I don't preach that as someone who is ignorant of what I'm talking about. I am the representation of the fact that he's able. You're hearing this sermon from a physical body who did the opposite of what Jesus says to do. I didn't listen. And I don't tell you that tonight to go, hey, you can get away with doing your own thing for a while if you just come back to Jesus in the right time. I tell you that, that would be a foolish way of interpreting this. I tell you this to go, there is a level of transformation that is possible for you. I would not discount the furthest person away from God tonight. I don't care if you slept with a guy you don't even know last night. Don't care if you've been watching porn for so long, you can't have a conversation with a female who's attractive for longer than three seconds before in your mind you are sleeping with her in your mind. Which is way more of the guys in this room than would make some of y'all comfortable. It's all of us in this. But when Jesus gets a hold of you, things change, but they don't change because you sang a song and had a moment in church. They change, what's the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount? Because you start practicing what Jesus calls you to practice. So for the remainder of this sermon, I got three practices for sexual wholeness, and I believe if you consistently do these things, everything will change. You can change, you will. Your marriage will be changed. You'll be like me, waking up today to a picture on the wall of my house, looking at my two daughters and looking at my wife and going, you gotta be kidding me. He is that good. It is possible. I've talked to so many guys today who just by looking in their eyes, they're going, it's it's not possible for me. I'm too far gone. And I'm going, look at me. Look right here. You see these eyes? See these eyes? They've seen what your eyes have seen. And I'm telling you right here, right now, standing as the man of God that God calls me to be, not perfect, not completed. It's possible for you. And I could give 15 practices, but these three are the most central, especially given the age group that is the predominant group that's in this room tonight. So can y'all handle a few more minutes of this? I know this is the most intense sermon you've ever heard in your life. Look at the person next to you say, we made it this far, we might as well keep going. We made it this far. (laughs) All right, three practices. Number one, practice limitation for the sake of freedom. Practice limitation For the sake of freedom. So what are the Matthew verses about that are saying, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye? They're about radically fighting and combating sexual sin with an attitude that accepts no compromise. Because sexual sin is built different. This is not something you can fight. If you fight it, it will beat you. This is something that the Bible actually calls you to flee. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Flee from what? Sexual immorality. That's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get pornography. Porneia means any sexual action that is indulged Outside of the context of marriage, marriage defined by God, not by culture, which is one man, one woman for one lifetime. Now, I just define pornea because that's what it means. You live in a culture where you can look up pastors who will tell you that that's not what pornea means. I don't know any other way to say it other than that they're lying to you. Like we're having this conversation in culture that deals with relativism in a way that denies objective truth. So it's like, my Bible's black. And one of you go, it's not black to me. It's offensive to me that you would call that black. I'm so sorry that it, dude, it's black. Like, it's like, I don't, I don't know any other way to say it other than don't be mad at me saying that that's black. Don't be mad at me defying porneia as what it actually means in the Bible. And Paul says, what does he say? Fight it. No, he says that in other places about other sins. He says, don't fight this one. You will lose. You run fast. That word flee means like to, to pick up your garment and take off, like go. It's actually reaching back. I can't believe I forgot about this all day long. It's reaching back to the story of Joseph. He leaves his garment behind and he ends up getting arrested for it. But he's like, he's like I'm out. Potiphar's wife coming after me. Like, I just need to get out of here. But when Paul talks about fleeing, he's going, hey, the key to fleeing is not ending up in a moment of temptation and then going, okay, I gotta run. So some of you guys are like, we're gonna hold each other accountable. Like when you're in there, in her, in her apartment, like we're, you're just gonna, you're gonna get tempted and I want you, I don't care if you have to jump from the balcony, you're gonna jump and I'll come pick you up. Like we try to make hero stories of fighting our sin and go, you know what, if you're in that moment and you're in your room and you're tempted, you got your computer, you got your iPhone, like you just need to run, we just need to run. We need to make it a habit to run. Here, Paul's going, no, don't do that. Because if, if that's your plan, you've already lost. You need to flee before the temptation. You need to create structures of limitation in your life that keep the desire in certain confines. It's good for a river to have banks that limit its power. And it is good for you, even when it's radical, to go, okay, I'm going to flee sexual immorality because all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What does that mean? What does Paul mean by, hey, any sin you commit, it's outside of you, it's external. But there's one that's internal, and it's sexual sin. I've always been confused by the meaning of that. Here's what it means. It's got a biological meaning attached to it because when God created sexuality, he wired it so strongly into the brains of men and women that it has an equally as powerful capacity to enslave you outside of the context he created it for. This, this might be a little too mature of a conversation for some of you, but I'm hoping y'all can stick with me. What was God's design for sexuality? His design, one woman, one man, one lifetime, together. What happens? They have a sexual experience together where in God's mind, what he dreamed up is that this chemical would be released when a man and a woman, and woman both have an orgasm, and that chemical is called oxytocin. And what that chemical does is it literally tells your whole body like a drug, this is what you want. And the woman is bound to the man, the man is bound to the woman. It's like a magnetic pull of when we get the opportunity, we are doing that again, because that's what we are made for. Well, the oxytocin release happens similarly to the way dopamine is released in the brain of a drug addict. By the way, dopamine is what has you addicted to your phone as well. You're similar to a heroin addict and so am I because that notification just fires dopamine and it creates pathways in your brain and when you have neural pathways in your brain, those pathways want to be traveled down. So here's what happens. When you sin sexually, oxytocin is released in your brain. When you masturbate to pornography, when y'all go too far physically, when you, and what you do is you end up attaching an oxytocin release to a screen and to individuals who are all over the place And so over time, what happens? Your soul becomes divided. You lose that wholesomeness that God created you with, and you become divided all over the place. Now, when I was growing up, I heard it said, if you have sex with all these people, your soul gets split in all these different directions, and then you get married, and then you have nothing to give that person. That's a bad way of teaching it. What really happens is your soul gets split so many times that you become numb to God's design for sexual pleasure. Some of y'all are scared to death of how addicted you've become. Because you know it takes so much more to even arouse you than it did 10 years ago. And you're going, how am I ever going to get married? This is going... And there are legitimately scores of people within the sound of my voice who are thinking that as I preach this. Because you've attached that oxytocin release. And what's happened over time is it's lost its effect. So I've had people tell me, yeah, I felt really ashamed the first time I slept with somebody. But now that I've done it 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times, it just... It doesn't even matter anymore like it's just fun and I don't feel anything and I go oh God the fact that you don't feel anything is the ultimate warning sign that you have hardened your heart to the Holy Spirit the fact that you don't feel anything is the effect of splitting it that many different ways and then you try to enter into a marriage and you're going to be bound to one woman. Ladies, you're going to be bound to one guy. And that's the habit that you've created with your brain. And Paul's going, don't openly sin sexually because you don't know this. But you are screwing up your brain in a way that you can't get it back. Like you will mess yourself up. Your brain will go to levels that you'll go, I, I don't even know how to get this under control anymore. I can't even. That's where a lot of us are right now. And what God would do is He would say, okay, how are we transformed? Romans 12, by the renewing of our minds. Scripture says that we have the mind of Christ. God can give you a new mind. But that progression begins with a radical commitment to walking in a new sexual ethic. And so, I promise, this is the longest point of the three. But fleeing sexual immorality is all about knowing that, being freaked out by that, and creating safeguards. Not because you're fearful but because you know what God's calling you to. So here's the first call. When I say limitation that leads to freedom, what does it look like for you to put limits on your sexual desire so that you don't completely mess this up? What does it look like to, to talk to your friends and go, hey, we're not gonna decide once we get back to the room if we're gonna go too far tonight. We're gonna tell our friends, hey, by this time, we should both be home in separate beds, and you need to text us just real quick and make sure that happens. I know that feels like legalism. That feels like, I don't need a mom, I don't need a dad, and I'm saying, yes you do, because your desires will enslave you. If you're enslaved to pornography, the road to freedom looks like heavy limitation. We have a group called Conquer, and I would highly encourage anybody who's in that place to go through Conquer series, but one of the things you'll learn is that you gotta get ruthless with your own limitations. So, before Gage was here, I was the lead pastor of ACC, but I was also the college pastor. And I was the, uh, I don't know if it was called, spiritual advisor for one of the fraternities on campus. I'm not going to say which one. But, um, but I would meet with these guys, and these guys came to me one day. This is like right after I moved to Auburn. And they were like, we're so tired of it, so tired of porn consuming my whole life. I know it's going to ruin my future marriage. And we've decided, it was like six guys, they were like, we've decided we're not letting this happen. So you you got to tell us how do we get free. So I was like, okay, here's what me and my friends use. We use this internet software called Covenant Eyes. And what it does is it basically sends a report of everything you look at on your devices to your accountability partners, and they can go through and like, check in on you, and, and, and then they'll know. And they're like, great, we're getting Covenant Eyes. Then we met again the next month, and they're like, okay, we figured out a way around Covenant Eyes, because if you download another browser, it doesn't register with Covenant Eyes, so we're, we're still, lo- we're, we want to get clean, but like, we're still looking at porn, so what do we do? So then one of them said, okay, what if we gave our password that we put in to download new apps to each other? And like, what if you set my password and I set yours and everybody doesn't know their password? So if you want to download a new app, you have to go to one of the guys. So they were like, yes. And then that was working. And then we met the next month and one guy was like, such a good plan. But he goes, <laughs> this is hilarious, he goes, I got tempted one night, and he looks at one of the other guys, and he goes, I figured out if I could guess the password that would be your password for my phone, and I, I slipped up again, but, so I need you to put in a new password. And, and like they're doing everything they can to make sure that they get victory in this area. That's the level of fight that we're talking about here. Not because we're afraid, but because we recognize what's at stake. And if we're going to call ourselves the remnant, this is the area that we have to be the most radical about. If we're going to go, we are the remnant of followers of Jesus who take the word of God seriously, sexuality is not one area where that has to be clear. That is the area. This is the battleground for your generation. I did a sermon series that you've probably heard about called Grace Truth 2020. We were coming into 2020 and I was like, God has a vision for the 20s and it wasn't coronavirus in my mind at the time, but I said three things are gonna define the next decade. Number one is sexuality, number two is politics and racism, and number three is anxiety and depression. So we're gonna talk about each one. And it's been amazing to me to watch how those themes have actually carried out, but the sexuality one is the one that I think will define the remnant of God. So I'm calling you practice limitation for the sake of freedom. Number two, and I promise this one's a lot faster, practice vulnerability for the sake of intimacy. By the way, is this helpful? Is this like like we're we're tuned in and God's doing something? Okay, because I feel like for people, the lights are just coming on spiritually right now. Practice vulnerability for the sake of intimacy. So sexual wholeness demands that this area come out of the dark. And I aimed this one today specifically at married couples because no one tells you this, but getting married is not the end of your battle sexually. It's the beginning of a new one. And it's a fight for intimacy with one person. So remember all those issues I talked about earlier? Here's what I'm witnessing happening as people get married. People are coming out of this church. They're getting married, which is awesome. But then immediately after going on their honeymoon, they're hitting a wall sexually, and they're going, wait, 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 wait. We weren't ready for this level of attack against our connection to one another. And we didn't know that you don't like go on your honeymoon and have everything go right and fireworks every single time. And this is amazing. This is going to work out and we're going to just have sex all the time. It's great. And what they start to do is they start to pull back. And they start to not talk about it and put this area of their life over in a corner. And many couples go through decades without talking about it, without being vulnerable, and they have a really weak sex life. And it's the reason why, as they get older, once their kids move away, there's no heat, there's no relationship being cultivated just because they were afraid to actually have a conversation the whole time. So when you get married, I need the most vulnerable, consistent conversation you have with your spouse to be about your sex life. And I'm only telling you this Because if I could go back 10 years ago, this is what I wish someone would have told me. In fact, y'all know I officiate quite a few weddings, and we're going to have to bring that down soon because it's like every weekend somebody's getting married, which is good. It means God's purposes are happening in this church. But I always meet with the groom and the bride right before, and we don't do full premarital counseling because I think you need to get premarital counseling from a couple that's old enough to actually raise kids and can tell you, hey, this works because we're like figuring it out as we go. But I I always tell the bride and the groom, do not. Go on your honeymoon, come home and stop talking about sex. You need to be honest about the connection you have with each other. You need to be honest about your daily rhythms. You need to be honest about how often it is working for each one of you. You need to talk about ways that you can better serve one another because one of the things I didn't know about sexuality is that the most enjoyable part of your sexuality is the pleasure that the other person finds in you. God created it as this beautiful picture of self-sacrifice for the sake of pleasure. It's awesome, and so for me, Courtney and I got married and no one told us this stuff. We thought if we make it to our wedding without having sex, everything will go great. Guess what? Courtney and I made it to our wedding without having sex and everything did not go great. We're super attracted to each other and the honeymoon was great and year one was great, but we're going, you know what? We gotta talk about this and we gotta have a conversation about all these things that we wanna hide off in the corner. And you know what happened over time? The more we talked about it, The better it got and the better it got the more we wanted more of it and now here we are 10 years in i'm sitting across the table from another couple in our church and they're they've been married for like 20 25 years and i was like man i'm just trying to help couples who are getting married because nobody talks about how you have to keep this conversation open but i was like i'm just being honest with you like i would have thought the best sex of mine and courtney's life would have happened right when we got married but i was like am i crazy that 10 years in it's like the best it's ever been right now. And I, y'all, you know, I don't want to be that pastor who's like, ugh, I have sex all the time. Like, I'm not that guy, all right? I'm not. Courtney was at the first service today and I said, it's the best it's ever been. And I like, looked out of the corner of my eye, I was like, you better be nodding over there, woman. Because if only one of us thinks that, this is a problem. But I was telling this, we telling this couple, No lie, like, so good. And they looked at me, and they were like, that is so encouraging to hear, because they see that in the younger generation as well. And the guy kind of smiles at me, and he goes, as excited as you are about 10 years in, here's the good news. So much better at 20. And I was like, y'all, I know this is uncomfortable, but this is what the church should be. If we're going to be the remnant, intimacy must burn brighter than immorality. Intimacy must burn brighter. Y'all, immorality is burning pretty bright. And it looks like the world is having all the fun, doing whatever they want all the time, and they're going, y'all are boring. You've got this shoved into the corner of your life that you can't talk about it. And I'm ready for the church to rise up of married couples who are going, This is awesome, and no, it's not easy, but we're experiencing this the way God created it, and we're not gonna lose our kids over this. We're not gonna lose our marriage over this. We're not gonna lose our calling over this. We are actually going to experience the intimacy that God created us for with no fear of rejection, with no fear of regret, with no slavery. It holds us back, and so if you're here tonight and and you're looking toward the future, I want this for you. I want this for our church. And I believe God has laid it in our lap for right now. Here's a way to remember point number two. God intends sexual intimacy to sanctify you. Sin intends sexual immorality to destroy you. This is where the enemy gets you. He takes what God created, so beautiful, so awesome, to be a part of you becoming more like Jesus. And he goes, let me just twist that just slightly. And I want to destroy you completely. So I told y'all all night, I am not the person to be preaching this sermon. How in the world has God gotten me to this place? I'm 32 years old. Turned 33 on Wednesday, so Jesus' age. And this real secret, the real secret is in point number three. I practiced one and two and saw God do something great, but number three is the one that you got to have, and it's this. Practice confession for the sake of healing. Practice confession for the sake of healing. James chapter 5 says, Confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. It's powerful to confess your sins to God, but here's the problem with just doing that. As long as it's just you and God, there's no true mandate to be changed from the inside out. I had a best friend when I was 13 years old. We came to know Jesus together. He's actually the pastor of a church in Woodstock, Georgia, and we have been as honest and open as we possibly can about our sexual struggles, and I noticed that God started freeing me from things that had me bound. The more open I became in the context of confession to another person, so we like lay it out there. And when we have accountability, it's not yeah I struggled to have my quiet time. It's like no this happened and this thought came up and da da da. You know what we do after we confess? We ask the other person, hey, that's great that you just told me that. What did you just lie to me about? Or what did you just leave out? That's real accountability. And the most powerful part about it is not getting beat up because of what you did wrong. It's having another person look you in the eyes and see all of you and go, son, your sins are forgiven. Him saying to me, seeing all that. See, it's one thing for you to be impressed by the fact that I yell and wave my Bible around. But For me to have a friend who sees all of that and goes, hey, I still believe you're an incredible man of God and you're a great husband and you're a great dad. You are a broken individual who's being healed over time by a loving, patient God. Do not believe what the enemy is saying over you. And some of you, you're not bound because of your issue. You're bound because your issue's in the dark. And when you get things out of the dark, you will notice that they become a lot lighter once they get in the light. You get something exposed in the light and God goes, hey, that thing that's been pushing you around, you can actually push it around because once it's exposed, he can really deal with it. But you need people in your life who you bear all with and who you go, it might be one person. This is who I am and this is what I've done and God can heal you. Psalm chapter 51 is David's confession to God of what he did when he slept with a woman named Bathsheba. I wanna do a whole sermon series about Psalm 51 because it's so powerful. If you don't know this, Israel's greatest king was tempted one night when he was on the roof of his palace and he saw a woman bathing. He should have been at war. His problem was that he was in the wrong place, first and foremost. He sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, needs to cover it up because her husband is away at war where he should have been. He has him killed to cover that up And then the baby gets lost because of their sin. And as all of this is happening, it's all in secret and it's all unknown until he has a friend who comes to him and says, we gotta talk about this. So when you read Psalm 51 and you read the top of it, it says, when David slept with Bathsheba after he confessed to the prophet Nathan. It's huge. Because if Nathan never called david out david would have probably kept that secret the rest of his life the thing no one tells you about how to walk in sexual purity is that you can't do it alone and you can't do it with just you and god you have to have people around you who see it all and who are in it with you and some of you the best step you can take tonight is not just to confess your sins to god as we sing some songs which we're going to do is to leave here tonight and go to dinner with somebody and go, I've never told anybody this, but dot, 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 fill in the blank with whatever you're carrying right now. Because the goal in all of this, I can't stress this enough, look up here, I know I talk long, but this is such an important conversation tonight. The goal of all of this is not just that you have a great sex life when you're married. I hope you do, but at the end of the day, that's not that big of a deal. I know to most people saying that would be like, whoa, Tonight is not about, hey, don't you want a great sex life when you're married? Tonight is about, don't you want more of Jesus? And are you tired of settling for less than the life he died and rose for you to live? Okay, then it's time to get some things out in the open. And what did David say in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit to sustain me. Here's the prayer as we sing. The prayer is, God, whatever it takes... Make me whole from the inside out. I want to be whole right now. You can put your notes away. Let's stand up all over this room. Let's be faithful to just let God speak in this moment. I'm trusting God to give me specific words for you as I pray. And then we're going to respond like the people of God who have been redeemed from much. You can bow your head all over this room. God, give me the words right now. Please, Holy Spirit, give me the words right now to say In Jesus' name, to the girl in the room who's never told anyone about her pornography addiction, you're not alone. It's okay. God knows about it. He's not intimidated by it. And you can come out of hiding tonight. You can come out. the guy in the room who's so scared of letting himself feel something right now because he knows he's not going to stop he wants to he doesn't want to be sneaking around his wife one day he doesn't want to be letting his kids down one day but he just he knows this noose is on him he can feel the enemy pulling on it right now going don't you dare try to feel something in this moment don't you dare try to make this your message this is somebody else's do not listen to that guy pray in the name of Jesus that you would shut that voice up right now. You would tell him he's your son. You would throw a robe on him. You'd remind him of his identity. That You would remind him that you ran to him before he ran to you. You called him son when he would have been fine just being a slave in your house. God, I pray for the future marriages of this room. God, that they would be a beacon of light in a culture that looks at the church and rolls their eyes at our irrelevance at our boredom God would we radiate with the joy that comes from having intimacy with you and intimacy with our spouses God would you set our lives on a brand new trajectory right now we confess our sins we admit right now that our hearts have been tainted And what can wash away our sin? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we claim the blood of Jesus over the doorframe of every heart in this room. We ask you by your power to set them free tonight. This is your moment, God. Holy Spirit, say what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen.